Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, August 25th, 2021. I am so glad that you are here and that I'm here together with you, that we can study together. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. It's the highlight of my week, and I'm grateful to every one of you for joining tonight. The beginning of our Parsha, Kisavo, discusses the mitzvah of Bikurim. In Israel, farmers, during the time the Beit HaMikdash was standing, farmers would gather in their crops, and they would take a selection of the first fruits, that's the word Bikurim, the first, place them in a basket, travel to Yerushalayim, take them to Jerusalem, appear in the courtyard of the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, approach the Kohen who was there, and they would give the basket to the Kohen. That's the mitzvah of Bikurim. When they did this, there was also a text that they were required to speak. And the text goes like this at the beginning of our parsha: The Anis of Amarta. And you shall answer and you shall say the following words. When you hand the basket of first fruits to the Kohen, you will say, Arami Ovedavi. An Aramean tried to destroy my forefather. It refers to Lavan trying to destroy Yaakov. This should be familiar to us because this is the passage that we quote at the Pesach Seder as part of the Haggadah. By the way, just in parentheses, I once made a terrible mistake. I hope nobody else makes this mistake. Um, Arami is an Aramean. That's an ancient people that lived in the area that is now Iran, Iraq. By mistake, I once said Armenian. The Armenian people is very, very different. First of all, it's a modern people. Second of all, it's a wonderful people that have very good relations with Jews and they should be credited. They're wonderful, wonderful people. Aramean is a different people with a very different character. So don't mistake, don't make the mistake I made of confusing Aramean with Armenian. All right. And Arami, let's just say Arami, tried to destroy my forefather. And they went down to Egypt and they were there with a small number of people and they became greedy, might, and numerous. And the Egyptians treated us cruelly and they afflicted us and they imposed hard labor on us. So we cried out to Hashem our God and God heard our voice and saw our affliction and God took us out of the land of Egypt and God brought us to the land of Israel and God has given me this crop to receive and I have come to bring the first fruits to the Beis Amigdash to the Kohen. Okay, beautiful passage. But what's interesting is the recitation of those words is a necessary fulfillment of the mitzvah. If you would just hand the basket silently, you would not have fulfilled the mitzvah. You have to actually say the words and you have to say those words. Not only do you have to say those words, but the format has to be the same because remember, the passage starts with the words, Ve'anisa ve'amarta, and you shall answer and you shall say. In other words, first a question is posed, and then you, the farmer, answer the question with the words, Arami, Ovid, Avi, etc. Let me ask you a question. So what's the question? 
The farmer has to answer the question and say, Arami, Ovid, Avi, etc. But what was the question? So Ibn Ezra says, the question was asked by the Kohen, who said, what is it that you have brought? The Kohen would say, what is this that you have brought? And so the farmer would answer, would answer the question, Arami, Ovid, Avi. An Aramean tried to destroy my father Yaakov. And we went to Egypt and God took us out and God brought us to Israel and God gave us this land. And now I am bringing the first fruits. That's what I'm doing here. That's what I have. Okay. Let me ask you three questions. Number one, why does the Torah not tell us the question? The Torah tells us to answer. And it gives us the, 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 the text of the answer. Why not start with the question? Say, the Kohen asked this question, and the farmer answers. Why start with, and the farmer answers, and not give us the question? That's number one. Number two, I'll ask you, is the question really necessary? I mean, you know, a harvest is a harvest. So thousands of farmers show up at the same time. They each have a basket. There's fruit in the basket. I mean, once you ask the first couple of people, what are you doing here? You know, it's a long line of people who are all there for the same reason. Why does the Kohen have to ask every single person the same question when the answer is obvious? And the third question is the most important question. And that is, what has any of this got to do with our lives? How is this meaningful to me? How is this relevant to me in my life? So I want to share with you an answer given by Bailey Newman. And she begins her answer with part of a lecture that she heard a number of years ago by a writer named Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman was giving a speech and he was talking about his 97-year-old, at that time, 97-year-old cousin, Helen. Helen was a Holocaust survivor. And way before that, when she was still a little girl, Helen was an avid reader. She loved to read. She loved books. But then the Nazis came and she was in a ghetto and there were no books in the ghetto and anyone caught with a book would be shot, would be killed. One day, somebody slipped Helen a Polish translation of Margaret Mitchell's famous novel, Gone with the Wind. And Helen stayed up. She covered the windows so nobody would know. And she stayed up that night and she read the first chapter. And the next night she stayed up and read the second chapter. And each night she would stay up, cover the windows so no one would detect her until she finished the book. So Neil asked her, why would you go to that danger, to that risk, just to read a novel, just to read a book? And Helen told Neil, because for an hour each night, I wasn't in the ghetto. I was in the American South. I was having adventures. I got away. And then Neil Gaiman explains, again, remember, he himself is an author, a novelist. 
we decry too easily what we do as being kind of trivial, the creation of stories as being a trivial thing. But the magic is that it can actually offer you a genuine escape from a bad place. And in the process of escaping, it can furnish you with armor, with knowledge, with weapons, with tools you can take back into your life to help make it better. Written stories and oral stories both offer escape. Escape from somewhere. Escape to somewhere. Stories should change you. And we are all storytellers. We all get lost. We get found. We get rewritten in the stories that we weave. Stories form our understanding of our experiences. Stories can be redemptive. They can be rebellious. They can be reassuring. Khalil Gibran once said that next to hunger and thirst, our most basic human need is for storytelling. Stories are what give us context. And depending on the story we tell, it can give us strength and hope. The stories we tell do not just influence our reality, but they create it. Hannah Arendt wrote, Stories reveal meaning without committing the error of defining it. So in the verses in our Parsha, we find for the first time that the telling and the retelling of the story of the Jewish people becomes the obligation of every Jew. And it makes every one of us into what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs refers to as a nation of storytellers. That's who we are. Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi writes, Only in Israel and nowhere else is the injunction to remember felt as a religious imperative to an entire people. In the mitzvah Bikurim, the Jewish people are obligated to tell the story of our past. And we utilize this same story, this passage, as our story every year at the Passover Seder. But note that telling a story is a choosing of what to tell and how to tell it. The story of every event can be told in multiple ways. So we have to ask ourselves, what is our version of our story, of our struggles that we have experienced personally and collectively? Because Depending on the story we tell, we might be caged by the stories we tell 
about ourselves. We might tell a story of ourselves as a victim, a story of ourselves as doomed. We might tell a story like Lavan might tell a story about our need to destroy someone else. We can become farmers and tell stories about where our fruits come from. So the Torah doesn't really have to state the question of the Kohen, because that's not the important part. That question is addressed to every single one of us all the time. And the question is, what story are you telling yourself about your history? About your gifts, about your challenges? Because let's just think about this for one moment. Let's just put ourselves in the position of this farmer as he or she approaches the Kohen and the Beis Hamikdash with this basket of fruits. What story might the farmer tell the Kohen? What are you doing here? Maybe I would tell the Kohen about the struggles that I had this year and how difficult it was to harvest these crops. Maybe I would tell the Kohen that this work is too hard, that I never seem to get ahead, that I'm losing money and going further, further into debt. Maybe I would tell the Kohen, you know, I'm really frustrated after all the work that I've had to do and now I've got to give some to you. You didn't do any work for it and I'm standing in this long line and everybody's standing in this long line waiting just to give stuff to you. It's frustrating. And who knows? what the story might be from this farmer. Because the story they tell the Kohen, that becomes their reality. And so here, the question is already posed and the answer is given. Not what they might have said to the Kohen is their story, but rather the Torah in this mitzvah forces the farmer to reevaluate, to concretize, to attach meaning and motivation to the actions that they're performing. Because the stories we tell matter. They shape our reality. Anthony DeMello wrote, A lost Kohen is found by means of a candle. The deepest truth by means of a simple story. So in being asked about their Bikurim, the farmer is given the opportunity to reflect and to tell the story of the Jewish people. To see themselves as a link in this historic chain of this large, gigantic story to see God in their life in a very real way and to express gratitude for that presence. This is the opportunity for the farmer to tell the story, to see their pain and struggles and suffering as purposeful 
as the unfolding of a grand, historic promise of God. This is not just a harvest. It is a triumph of Jewish history. It's a triumph of Jewish destiny, and it is a reinforcement of faith in God. We need to be mindful that what we tell ourselves and the story we tell others about what we harvest, what we have suffered, it matters. So, at every moment, we should be formulating our story about everything we go through all the time. What is the story I'm going to tell myself about this? And I'm going to tell others about this. And that applies collectively and that applies individually to each one of us. Just as one simple, obvious example in the last year and a half is the story we tell ourselves about our experience, the story of loss and anxiety? Or is it the story of learning new skills and becoming stronger through loss and anxiety? And we have to choose carefully because the stories we tell matter. It literally creates our reality because we are a nation of storytellers living in a world made of stories. And so we have to choose carefully the wording and the structure of the stories we tell ourselves and tell others about our lives, about our history because that will create what our lives mean to others and especially to us. Let me share with you a second piece, please. So the beginning of our Parsha has two remarkable mitzvos, commandments. One, I just discussed with you the mitzvah of Bikurim, bringing the first fruits. The second is the mitzvah of Miser, which means the farmer harvests his crop, takes 10%, and the tenth goes to the levy to support the levy. Okay. Both of these mitzvahs require a verbal statement. Bikurim requires the statement that I mentioned to you, Arami Ovid when a farmer separates this tenth as miser, he's required to declare the following declaration. He says as follows, And you shall say, when you separate the tenth for the levy, you shall say before Hashem your God, I took all of the holy stuff and distributed it the way it should be distributed. I gave it to the levy, I gave it to the poor, as you commanded me. Exactly what you commanded me to do. I didn't overlook any of your commandments. I didn't forget anything. I didn't do it wrong. I listened 
to what you commanded. Asisi, I did. Kachal asher tzivisani. Everything that you commanded. Hashkifa mimaon kadshacha min And therefore, God, now you look down from your holy heavenly abode and bless your people Israel who, de- is, who are deserving of your blessing. Okay. I declare before God, I did everything you commanded. What does that mean? Well, simple, obvious answer is, I did what you asked. I designated the right amount. I distributed to the right people. I did exactly what the mitzvah requires. Okay. In other words, I did it right. By the way, it's fascinating that this text is known in the Talmud as vidui meiser, which literally means the confession over meiser. We're used to the word vidui, confession, on Yom Kippur, where we talk about what we did wrong. But in order to hold ourselves and for God to hold us accountable for what we did wrong, we have to at least know that we can do it right. And we have to at least be proud of what we do right. I did it right. I'm proud of that. On Yom Kippur also, we shouldn't only think of our mistakes and our and our shortcomings. We should also think of what we're proud of, what we did right. That's also part of the story. Okay. Rashi says something remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. I did everything you, God, commanded. Rashi says, Samachti, I rejoiced. V'semachti bo, and I caused others to rejoice. Hold on a second. Let's make sure we understand. When the Torah says, Asisi this farmer says, I did everything you commanded. Rashi says that means I did the action and I was happy. And I made others happy at the same time. That is a component of Assisi. I did it. To do it is not just to do the action. It's to do the action and be happy. And to do the action and be happy and for others to be happy. That's, that's, it's not two separate things. It's not do a mitzvah and be happy at the same time you're doing the mitzvah. No. It is to do the mitzvah requires being happy as you do it, and making others happy as you do it. Without that happiness component, the mitzvah has not been done correctly. And the truth is, it's not always so easy to do. Our rabbis tell us, famous line in Pirkei Avos, Hevi mikabilis kol ha'adam besimcha. We should greet everybody with joy, with happiness. I don't know if you ever saw this. Sometimes I see this. Person's walking down the street and they're looking at their their phone while they're walking. Or even, let's say, you know, a Jewish person's walking down the street and he's reading a book of Tehillim as he's walking down the street. There's a phrase for that. It's called chassid shota. Chassid means he's pious, reading Tehillim pious, and, but he's a pious, he's a fool. <laughs> he's a fool. That's You don't walk down the street while you're reading a book or looking on your phone. Number one, you could trip. 
You could fall. You could hurt yourself. Number two, if you walk down the street reading a book, how can you say hello to the person you pass? How can you greet everybody with a happy expression? And sometimes we pass someone on the street and we don't want to say hello because we don't like them. It's not so easy to force ourselves to greet every single person with joy, with happiness. But it is a necessary component of doing the mitzvah. That's what Rashi is saying. Rashi says if we want to perform a mitzvah in an ideal sense, it's not enough to do the action. It has to be done with happiness and with making others happy. And if that's lacking, the mitzvah is imperfect. Often, we don't even realize we're not smiling. Often, others can sense our mood more quickly and more accurately than we do ourselves, especially our spouse. And we can upset or insult or worry another and not even say a word and not even realize that we're doing it. And this causes so many problems in relationships before even a word is spoken. The same, of course, is true in the positive. With a warm smile at a propitious moment, we can reassure. We can calm someone's fear or worry. We can welcome and love with just a smile. And that's why we need this reminder that in order to fulfill, to do everything that you have commanded includes and requires samachti, I was happy, and I made others happy. The great teacher, Rabbi, excuse me, Rabbi Avigdor Miller, was once asked, Rabbi, what can I do to receive a good judgment from God on Rosh Hashanah for a happy new year. And Rabbi Miller answered, smile. It's not a quip. It's not an exaggeration. It is a sensitivity that needs to be our way of life. We put so much effort into doing what God wants. We try to come before God on Rosh Hashanah, deserving, filled with merits. We want to be able, every one of us wants to be able to come before God on Rosh Hashanah and to say, God, I did everything that you asked. And therefore, because of that, therefore, God, look down from your heavenly abode and bless your people Israel. That's what we want to be able to say on Rosh Hashanah. And to do that, we must act properly. We must speak properly. And we must smile. My friends, I want to wish you a great evening and a wonderful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.